Hello, Martin here again. I trust you enjoyed our festive exploration of Tenko Reunion. Well, dear listeners, our Tenko celebration is not quite over yet, as we now have an interview with none other than Tenko's creator herself, Lavinia Warner. Lavinia has worked in television for over 40 years and is still making programmes today. Armed with a degree in history and psychology, she began her career in TV at London Weekend Television, working for both John Hawksworth and Verity Lambert, a post which involved attending all the recordings of LWT drama programmes, including the legendary Upstairs Downstairs. She made the move to TV researcher when she secured her dream job on Thames Television's This Is Your Life. It was while researching an edition celebrating the life of Dame Margot Turner that Warner became interested in the forgotten story of the women internees who had suffered in Japanese prison camps in Sumatra, many of whom she reunited for the programme. She deepened her interest as reporter and narrator on her own omnibus documentary, Women in Captivity, and it was while out in the Far East that she had the idea for Tenko, which was greenlit in late 1979. As well as devising Tenko's format and characters, Lavinia created the series' storylines too and continued to do so for the series' entire run, working closely with scriptwriters Jill Hyam and Anne Valerie. As Tenko was establishing itself as a highly successful ratings winner, Lavinia was simultaneously producing documentaries and won two of the first commissions for the newly launched Channel 4. She became one of the first women to set up her own independent television production company, Warner Sisters, and the company's first production, G.I. Brides, gained a BAFTA nomination. Numerous drama successes followed, including ITV's Selling Hitler, Wish Me Luck, another hugely successful wartime drama that went to three series on ITV, which she created with Jill Hyam. Two series of Rides for the BBC, Dangerous Lady, the first independently commissioned drama for ITV, The Jump, also for ITV, and big international co-productions such as The Bite and Do or Die. Two more successful adaptations of Martina Cole's bestsellers, The Take, starring Tom Hardy, and The Runaway, followed in 2009 and 2011, establishing Sky's drama credentials. A more recent production was the documentary Q's Forgotten Queen for the BBC, with Emilia Fox in 2016. She is currently commissioned to write a novel and is also working on an updated version of her acclaimed book, Women Beyond the Wire, which tells the story of the real women who inspired her to write Tenko. Andy caught up with Lavinia last month. So I'm thrilled to be joined by Lavinia Warner, the creator of Tenko. Um, Good morning, Lavinia. Good morning, Andy. So my first question, I guess it's, it's quite an obvious one, is can you tell me how researching on This Is Your Life led to your fascination with the women who were interned by the Japanese? Well, as researchers, we all had various subjects. And one of mine was about Margot Turner, who had risen to a very high position in Queen Alexandra's Army Nursing Corps. But one of the main tenets of her life, one of the basic things that she'd gone through, was four years of imprisonment under the Japanese in World War II. And it was this aspect that I got completely embroiled with and emotionally drawn to. I actually found about 40 women who she'd been in camp with. So I did, for the programme, reunite them wasn't the full 40 for the programme. But this is, what, about 40 years later? But 
once they got back from an awful ordeal, they'd wanted to get on with their own lives and actually hadn't wanted to talk too much about what had happened in yeah. camp. Yeah. And so quite although there were several friendships that kept on, a lot of them just lost touch with each other. Yeah. yeah. So in my researches, I, I did actually reunite them. Dame Margot Turner, this is your life. <laughs> and yeah, I got very, very emotionally involved with them because I hadn't known this story at all, that there were women civilian prisoners of the Japanese, thousands of them, and we heard nothing about it. There's nothing in, was nothing in the history books about it. The men, when they got back, were quite rightly lauded, the military men, but these civilian women had got forgotten along the way. And one of the reasons for that was that the British government had felt embarrassed by the invasion of Malaya and Singapore and actually didn't encourage any of their families to even meet them once they got back to Liverpool or wherever they were docking in 1945. So it was a very extraordinary story of something being swept under the carpet. My God, I'll never forget arriving back in England. Dark, bloody quayside, no one allowed to meet us. Shunted off by some snooty official as if being interned was a crime. Perhaps them who should have been ashamed. Well, us. The, the programme went ahead and the most emotional moment was actually at the end. One of the things that the women had kept up yeah. during all the privations was a hymn that they sang that a missionary, one of the prisoners, had made up for them to sing. They actually had sung the captive's hymn through all the privations. They sang this hymn at the end of the programme and it was an extraordinary moment. You could see all the fellowship coming through again, all their emotion. Um, they sang it beautifully, but it, it was a very big moment of the programme and indeed, actually, for the rest of my life, I have to say. So following that experience and this, this growing fascination with the experiences of these women, a few years later you pitched an omnibus documentary called Women in Captivity. Can you tell me a bit about that? I went to the BBC and on freelance contracts I actually became a producer there. But on the way to that I'd actually still been so fascinated by this story that I 
put the idea up of a documentary taking two of the women back to Sumatra, Dame Margot Turner and Betty Jeffrey, an Australian ex-nurse. Exactly 37 years to the day since we came into these houses. Right, the first of April, 1942. I say the food we had wasn't bad, and uh, as things were, as, as it turned out, it was much better here in this place than it was in the yeah. other. Had a bit of dirty yeah. rice and a bit of dirty Kang Kong and a bit of uh, um, mildewed cucumbers. They loved the cucumbers just because it was non-nourishing. But when you look back, it was the best um, we had. Yeah. Now this must be the bathroom, isn't it? Yes. yes. And we used to stand here. And just pour water over with one of those yes, things. That's right. The bucket. That's it. Yeah. yeah. As well as interviewing quite a lot of the other women who had been in the camp. One of the girls made up a song which we used to sing. It was a song of hate, really. Um, rather unladylike, but as the Japs walked up and down guarding us, we very quietly started to sing. One day I killed a Jap, killed a Jap, killed a Jap. I hit him on the head with a bloody lump of lead. Blast his soul, damn his eyes, bloody hell. I made a little sketch of my home in Somerset where I lived as a child, and she used a piece of my nursing uniform and with threads pulled out of old dresses and things like that, she copied my picture and it, every little thread is pulled out of other people's dresses and pieces of, of cloth. It was an amazing experience for Margot and Betty, mm. but for us as a film crew, one of the most telling moments was when we actually found the old Charitas convent and hospital still there in Palembang in Sumatra, and also about eight nuns who had been there during the war and who had helped in the early days some of these women to get messages through to the men's camp, which was quite some way away. But as well as in the early days, as I say, being able to nurse them a bit and also send messages along. Yeah. It was just extraordinary to me that they were still there. No warning was given when the women prisoners were suddenly moved to another camp. A move was always for the worse. Sickness was beginning to take its toll. For a time, these nuns in the Charitas Hospital, at great risk, had been able to carry messages to a men's camp nearby and to nurse the sick. But soon they too were imprisoned without medical supplies. That was the time, Andy, that I went back to my half-made hotel room and lay on the bed sweating and thought, I just have to get this story out to a wider audience one day than yeah. the documentary. And that really is, I suppose, when, in my head anyway, Tenko was born. Wonderful. It's so wonderful to hear those memories. 
So am I right in thinking that a key component of your Tenko idea was the women's isolation in all female society? and also the concept of newfound freedoms despite this incarceration. It was definitely a key component and it became apparent. These women eventually had been evacuated from Singapore in early 1942 and they'd become shipwrecked and this was a group of women who actually were incarcerated in four camps in Sumatra. They're the ones I particularly followed but there were thousands of civilian women imprisoned in Southeast Asia by the Japanese. So this is just one one segment of it. So those women were shipwrecked and Mm. um, they arrived on the shores of Sumatra with absolutely nothing, those who survived the shipwreck. And they were taken to a first camp, which wasn't too bad because it was in old bungalows that had been requisitioned by the Japanese. The second camp was a more of a, a camp that you saw from Tenko. And they arrived there and conditions got a lot worse there. Food withheld, badly treated, sickness started. But the women had to form a society, a structure of society right from the start. Good evening. Thank you all for coming. Ah, you'd think it was a charity do. I brought you together tonight because I think it's time we assessed our situation. We're going to assess it in two words. Bloody or quiet, please. We've been in this camp nearly two months. Seems likely we'll be here considerably longer, so it is essential that we organise ourselves as efficiently as possible. And that means that everyone must pull her weight. Oh, Lord, here we go. Jolly hockey sticks and up the school. And I mean everyone. Absolutely. As women, most of us have been used to considering just our own families, or simply ourselves. Well, now we have a corporate duty. Someone said to me, in these conditions, it's the selfish who survive. I don't believe that. I think if we're going to survive, and I don't just mean live, I mean survive as human beings, we need each other. They were women who, certainly the British women, from quite a wide variety of backgrounds. They were either wives of plantation owners or they were missionaries, nurses, teachers, part of the whole colonial machine, if you like. So this was completely alien to them. They had nothing. There were quite a lot of Dutch women in the camp as well, but they'd been allowed to keep quite a few of their possessions. They hadn't been shipwrecked. So it became a new class structure within the camp, with the Dutch women effectively being (laughs) the upper class people there. I had not thought to see you again. Nor are you. It is God's will. We, our boats were torpedoed. But these poor women were living on the island. Oh. Their houses had been taken over. They were only allowed to bring what you see. Considerably more than we have. You can say that again. It's considerably more than we have. Bloody <sighs> They had to form a leader. They had to form structures, as I say, in order to, you know keep themselves alive 
and in forming this new government and of course new friendships being dependent on each other as well they also found new freedoms they they actually hadn't had these opportunities before in life i mean this is in the early days when things weren't as terrible as they got um, they still had some energy when i met them i was expecting them to hate the japanese and what have you but most of them had forgiven them 30 40 years later anyway and most of them said that it was a really awful experience turned out to be as well one of the best experiences of their lives because they learnt how to be independent in thought and indeed they they realized their potential basically so it was an extraordinary and almost shocking and wonderful revelation at at the same time for me it was sort of like a lab for women's liberation in a way yeah that's such a fascinating premise as well so so were you concerned about you have this idea for this this potential drama were you concerned about the marriage between historical fact and television drama and doing right by all the real women you'd come to know if this actually became a series i did get very very close to these women so on the one hand, I really wanted to make this story better known, to put it in the history books, if you like, but in a more popular way, uh, an easier way of digesting it. But I didn't, because I knew that they were quite private women, they'd kept, it wasn't a secret, but they'd kept all these stories to themselves for 30, 40 years. So I actually didn't want to trespass onto their privacy. I'd researched all the camps in Southeast Asia and I'd done quite a lot of reading. So the characters were coming together of different aspects of different things that I'd read, different people. I didn't actually want to make any of my women, as I call them, embarrassed or um, uncomfortable by the fact of, of putting them on the spot and, and actually just taking characters exactly from real life. There are people like Sister Ulrika, who was very, very much like a wonderful nun who I'd met, Sister Katerina, who had been amazing in the camp. The image of her for many of the women was, you know, actually getting onto the ATAP rush roofs mm. when it was raining and trying to actually plug holes um, in, in the roof, and, and she was a wonderful person. But Sister Ulrika, even though her character was completely different from Katerina's, I, I will say it was largely based on my having met Sister Katerina. And so some of the characteristics of the women came through. As leaders, we must not allow our people to turn away from God. Oh, I don't think they are. It, it, it's just that... Some of the British prefer to worship in their own way. After all, only a few are Catholic. Which is why precisely I endeavour to keep my services as general as possible. Yes, uh, we do have our own informal meetings, communal hymn singing. Yes, I have heard you. But none, I think, has any religious training. Uh, no. In the absence of qualified priests, I see it as my duty to watch over all our flock. Perhaps. It but... is also fitting that the two communities should worship together. 
That at least we can do with harmony. Yes. In actual fact, once Tenko had been on for a year, most of my lovely ladies actually said, oh, um, we, would have, we would have said it was all right, you know, to, <laughs> to have us, our particular <laughs> stories. But I don't know whether they would. I, I was glad that I'd made that decision early on. Yeah, no, that, that does make sense. I remember you, um, I, I was getting excited when I was reading more about the historical background back in the day and I was saying, oh, and that's Rose and that's, and that's, and that's Blanche or whatever. And you were like, no, they're composite characters, Andy. They're, they're different elements. <laughs> you, were so, you were so wanting to pigeonhole I know, one. I know. I was terrible for it. And you, you were rightly told me off. <laughs> <laughs> but let me tell you, I, if I hadn't met those real women, because they were emotionally in my head, I, I couldn't have yeah. created that series. So that's the truth. Yeah. So in time, you produced a treatment for the series with a detailed description of the opening installments, the life in camp in a lot of detail, the running characters and storylines, and much of it made it to the first series as you intended, um, ultimately. But how confident were you at the time that it would be picked up in the right way and that a series would do justice to your, your firm vision? I had the passion of, of youth, let's put it that way, the passion of my own convictions. I did feel it could be really successful. Otherwise, I wouldn't have gone on with it. There were, however, a few hurdles along the way. The first hurdle, or not a hurdle, but what got into my head as well, was I was invited to the BBC Christmas party before the series went on, but we were script writing and we were developing it. And I did hear somebody a woman actually say I mean I was very excited to be at the party there were all my idols around and I did hear a woman say oh they're not going to do that awful Tenko thing are they <laughs> and I and actually I thought and it was sort of the first negative I'd heard really and I thought well we're going to show you you put the fire in my belly let's say that <laughs> And then Ken Riddington, who, a brilliant drama producer, he'd done To Serve Them All Our Days and, and lots of very well-known, very good series before that. He, he was asked to produce the series and he was not wanting to do it. He was being presented with a, a vast regiment of women and there were really hardly any, if any, ensemble women's drama, TV drama going on in those days. He was presented with that, but not only that, women who weren't attractive, they were in rags and they had no makeup and they also had a very downbeat existence. They, they were surviving. It wasn't necessarily a series with a whole load of laughs or lighter moments, shall we say. And I think Ken also was a bit scared. I mean, he freely accepted that fact soon afterwards. And for all these reasons, it was a bit sort of choppy at first. When I met very early on, obviously, Jill Hyam and Anne Valerie, the two women writers. Paul Wheeler was the writer of the first two episodes in Singapore. 
but Ken didn't really want us to mix out of school, as it were, mm. out of the BBC. <laughs> so in a way, we, we at the beginning, we had to meet in private, but we were all so excited to actually get this story going that we didn't mind doing that. Now, I must now immediately say this didn't last long with Ken. Ken became such a, a passionate supporter of the series and he, he got used to the women and he knew that actually it was he was learning something from the series, something about working with a women cast. And it was a positive in his life and in his work. And we became really, really great friends. And it feels good to have given him, so sadly he's, he's dead now, but mm. it, it became good to have actually changed his mind about quite a lot of things. Yeah, yeah, wonderful. It, it was just one of, one of the sticky moments right at the beginning. <laughs> yeah. Um, so initially, I understand that in, in the early days of production, people who were expecting to meet you, they're expecting to meet this grand old lady rather than the young woman that you were. <laughs> they, they thought that I would probably have been about 30 years old when the war started. So <laughs> quite a few people, let's say, just didn't understand that I'd researched it. I mean, how, how, old, were, how old were you? Um, I was in my late 20s. I know, it's incredible. You're the sort of person who just makes me feel, makes most of us just feel like such underachievers. I mean, you're in your late 20s and you create this series. <laughs> Mid-20s, actually. Right, yeah. oh God, you make it worse. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I don't know, like I say, I had, I had passion in my, in my belly for it. And that overrides everything, doesn't it? If I was selling it now, I would think, no, no, I don't mean that that particular series. But if I was selling something so new, I would have um, palpitations about whether it was ever going to be taken on. But then I was so inured by the story and, I, and I'd had quite a lot to do with popular drama at London Weekend, um, where I worked for three very eminent drama producers there. So I sort of had the experience of drama. Documentary was my first love. I also loved the intricacies of the historical facts. But I just knew that because I think I felt confident about my own intuition about things. Yeah. So um, I felt, yeah, we can make a big audience for this. In view of the increasing number of sick, Dr. Mason thinks it advisable that we separate them from the rest of the women. I agree. You have permission to change huts so all sick women together. Well, we did think that that might lead to further trouble, constant upheaval. We wondered if you might consider providing us with an extra hut which could be used as a sick bay by both the Dutch and the British prisoners. There is no such hut or huts in use. Aren't there any outside the compound? Prisoners not allowed outside camp except in working parties. No, but surely if people are These sick, are orders we... from high command. I too must obey my superiors, Mrs. Jefferson. So you've already briefly mentioned Jill Hyam and Anne Valerie. Can you tell me a bit more about Tenko's two scriptwriters who worked from your storylines? 
I was very lucky to have had two people who absolutely loved the subject matter as much as I did and also wanted to keep it as historically accurate as well, but also to expand those characters that I had formed, yes, but they needed sort of expanding for each script. I was so lucky they, they both was psychologically so much in tune with the story and the characters and one creates something but you still need somebody to go on with the vision and expand the vision so in those two writers and Jill particularly became a good friend of mine and um, we worked on subsequent things more later but we were in tune and they were brilliant so when I'm watching Tenko, um, I can always tell the difference between a Jill and a Nan script. They, they, they write in a slightly different way, a slightly different aesthetic, maybe. Can you tell me about your perspective on that? Well, they brought two sides of the coin to, to the whole piece, I feel. Anne was more of an exuberant writer in, in many ways. And Jill was, was more subtle. I mean, they both said this of each other, and that's why they got on so well. <laughs> and like different characters to Jill, and she often felt she could explore various sides to their personalities. Well, I'll give you an example. Jill enjoyed writing Marion, Anne Bell's character. And Marion, she was a much more reserved character in the beginning than a lot of the other women in the camp. But she went on, she had a steel in her makeup because she went on to be the women's leader of the camp. Jill actually was wonderful at making that journey for Marion happen. And she was attracted to the fact that you, at the beginning, she was quite shy. She'd had a colonel husband and she wasn't in the limelight so much. And again, the strengths of her character came out in camp and Jill was brilliant at writing that. Anne loved Beatrice Mason, the doctor, and again, made so much more of her character than I could have included in the storyline or whatever. Those two examples give you the fact that they, they both gave so much more to the basics. Uh, and thank, thank goodness for that. <laughs> I'm not equipped for leadership like you and Sister Ulrika. You're professionals. All I've ever been in my life is a wife and a mother, and I just can't do it. I can't bear this place. So who do you propose should take your place? <laughs> well... My nurses and I have a full-time job with the sick. Well, I thought Sylvia. Sylvia? Well, I knew oh, she's a bit five funny. five minutes with her in charge, we'd all be put up against a wall and shot. About one of the younger women. I mean, is someone without children? Well, who do you suggest? Blanche, perhaps? Maybe Dorothy? There must be someone. No, Marion, there isn't. I feel so desperately inadequate. Oh, for crying out loud, do you think I don't feel inadequate? You called me a professional. That is exactly what I am. I'm a well-trained doctor used to running a well-organised apartment in a well-equipped hospital. How on earth do you think I feel when I look round and I see the filth and the disease and I know that I'm powerless to lay my hands on just one small bottle of quinine? I have to find it in myself to cope. So must you. So, so what did you make of the initial casting choices? I, I believe you were particularly supportive of the choice of Anne as Marion. 
Oh, very, because I'd seen her at Nottingham Playhouse when I was but a schoolgirl, and uh, I loved her then. So I was delighted when she was cast. Do you know what? I wasn't part of the interviewing for the casting then. I mean, obviously now since I've been a producer, I'm part of it, but I loved all the choices. I had two wonderful writers, but I also had the most amazing cast. The audience latched onto their performances and who wouldn't? And it made it very special. And the great thing about the cast was that, well, there are several things to say about their wonderful acting talents, but also they became as close as the women in the camp had been to each other. A sisterhood actually was formed. And you, John, <laughs> what do you miss most apart from food? Aside from cucumber sandwiches, Damp ones. Mm. A belting good row with a man. <laughs> Preferably one I fancied. <laughs> I weren't always old. <laughs> what about you, Beatrice? What's your particular fancy or don't you divulge? It's a bust bodice. <laughs> bust bodice? Mm. And why not my aunt? Well, for one thing, I haven't got that much. <laughs> Quite enough for my purposes. <laughs> oh, like to feel held in. <laughs> Freud would have had a field day. But the sisterhood was very important and they, they forged amazing friendships, just like the original women. And the reunions that I'm a part of, and we all meet up with each other a lot. The cast particularly, very, very close to each other. We all wanted to do right by the real women. So there was that element coming in to make it very potent. I will tell you this funny story about Ken, which he subsequently laughed about as much as we did. The first read through, for the very first episode. This will just show you what a different page he was on in the beginning. We had the main read through and then he said, so I just want to ask all you ladies, would you mind asking your husbands or boyfriends or whatever, if they'd mind if you didn't shave your underarms? And of course, this comment about having to ask anybody just went down like a lead balloon, but then Everybody laughed about it afterwards. He was on a different page at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does sound like it, yeah. So, Tenko is in production. How did you feel finally being on location in Dorset in the recreated prison camp? Well, it, <laughs> it was good. It was great. It was all happening. We'd already been to Singapore to do recce and what have you. I knew it was going to be filmed in Singapore as well. But I also knew and had said indeed in the treatment, we can't film the camp in Singapore. It would have been too, too expensive. So I knew that it would have to be recreated in the UK. And it was in the, the sand pit. We had extras from Chinese restaurants and I don't know what. 
it was a great moment just seeing that camp come to reality, come to fruition. Molly, who we chose as Molly Ishmael, who'd been in the camp, the original camp, as a child, really. We made her our consultant, and she was brilliant, and she was a lovely, lovely lady. And I went down with her to the camp the first time we ever went. It was all fine, and it was all sunny and wonderful. And all of a sudden, Molly actually had to walk away and uh, looked a bit ill. And it was because she'd seen those um, Burke Clock and the other guards in their uniforms and, and it affected her. It was a shock to see them in the uniforms again. She got over it there. So the first series goes out and it's more successful than people expected, isn't it? So much more successful because the big series that year was meant to be The Borgers, wasn't it? And that was a big flop. And Yeah, it was more successful than that woman at the party. <laughs> <laughs> Slightly. <laughs> Were you surprised that a second series was almost immediately commissioned? No, I wasn't at the time. I'd already put in a treatment for a second series. You probably, you, you know everything as much, if not more, than I do. <laughs> um, I, I think we were already scripting Andy. So we knew it was in development, even though it hadn't got the green light immediately. We knew. I, I, I wasn't surprised. Again, it was that passion for it. I just sort of had a, an intrinsic feeling it was it was going to be okay. And I was delighted that the audience liked it. But what were we getting in the early days? Were we getting 15 million even for series one? I think we were by the end, weren't we? It was certainly doing well towards the end of the first series, yes. I can't remember the exact figures. So I, it's not one of my questions, but I'm going to cheekily ask it anyway. <laughs> so you created five or six new characters for series two that are so well remembered and so well drawn characters like um, Miss Hassan and, and Verna Johnson and Lillian Cartland where do some such characters come from so seemingly fully formed they had come from my research into all those Southeast Asian camps I'm emotional and I'm idealistic about the women I met in the camp, and why wouldn't I be? But there were elements in the camp who were disruptive. I think the reason Tenko worked in the end was it was a very diverse population, and there was manipulation. And I think we we dealt with the whole gamut of, of characteristics in that camp, and it was a microcosm of society. That's why, again, that's why it really intrigued me to to make it into a popular, in, in inverted commas, series, because everybody, I hoped, would identify with the characteristics of a diverse society. And it was a, a rich ground, a rich ground to actually experiment with that. This whole place is falling apart. Ever since that room was sent here, nothing is as it should be. Nothing. But then I've always mistrusted women like Mrs. Jefferson, with her oh-so-polite manner. Not that I didn't know that one day their arrogance would destroy them. Pride comes before a form. Not always. Always! 
As I said, I want my money. The moment I have it, I'll give it. Which is not good enough. So why don't you earn some from the guards? Others have to? Or are you also too arrogant? Can you tell me about your book, Women Beyond the Wire, which you wrote with John Sanderlands, which was published between the first two series, and, and about the launch event that you held for that? We've gone over the fact that I hadn't wanted to put any of my women, I'm sorry, I'm going to keep calling them that, because that's just... No, that's fine. <laughs> I didn't want to put any of my women on the spot by, by telling their stories specifically. But I very much wanted to give their specific story in a proper documentary, true historical fashion. I knew that I wanted John and I, and John had been the scriptwriter on that particular This Is Your Life episode, and he'd been as affected as me by the captives him and by meeting the women. So I wanted us to actually tell the true story of this particular Sumatran camp or the four camps in Sumatra. And that was Women Beyond the Wire. It came out just before series two in 1982. And for the launch, well, we had it at the Imperial War Museum. And of course, we invited all the cast and production team, as well as the real women who I'd filmed for the documentary and others. And it was a big milestone for me because fact was meeting fiction, basically, just as Tenko was. Seeing those real women interact with the actresses, vice versa, it was a very, very big moment in my life, actually. And I'm just going to go on to say, Andy, that, you know, Tenko has been huge in my life. Um, It still is. Sorry. It's okay. (laughs) And um, (laughs) I have to mention that because, you know, it it was a very special thing. And... I think the ramifications of that now are that it has been repeated and repeated on lots of channels. And I now think of historical subjects. I think I want to do them, but only if it has a direct impact on our lives now. The world still has and has more and more and more civilian prisoners, refugees, terrible happenings through more wars. And I still hope that the story of the women's survival in those camps in Southeast Asia, um, just if you read about it, you, you still get inspired. There is some hope that 300 out of the 600 who went in, into the particular Sumatran camps they survived and they could tell their stories and prove inspirational, I hope, to people today in the same situation. Going back to 1984, with the the third and final series, you get the opportunity to write about the women 
after liberation. I believe it was important for you to, to write that story as well, wasn't it? It was very important. I felt, I've actually told you, well, you knew, um, <laughs> about the women who who came back to absolutely no laudatory crowds at harbours, wharves, whatever. The government left them alone and they just went back to, well, the lives they'd had before the war. But of course, those lives were very, very different. And I've always felt, having talked to them in depth, that that their stories of how they had to reconnect with husbands, children, what we call real life, and life very changed post-war, Um, and not saying a word about what they'd been through, just trying to readapt, was was very, very, very tough for them. And I would have liked to have told a lot more about that particular story post-war. I remember you showing me the planning documents for series four and five, and it was just... So excited to see these. And you even had this idea for single plays for each character back when they'd gone back home. Did you like that idea? <laughs> I did, very much. <laughs> oh, but it was sort of, sort of painful to read as well, though, because you want you want them to exist. <laughs> yeah, and I also remember, because I'm a hoarder, as you know, I hadn't brought those things out for you to see for quite a while and then when I did you couldn't believe it <laughs> I couldn't I was just like... I got plans for series four and five up there in the attic yeah I did think it was a shame but I also when I was submitting these ideas said you know there are a number of ways you can do this and one of the ideas was to do even a one-off reunion um, and actually, that's what the powers that be chose in the end. Of course, the idea of a five-year reunion isn't mine. It was Kate's suggestion originally. Do you remember that last picnic we all had together on the beach? Well, we thought we would have the actual reunion dinner on October the 20th. And we're hoping to get as many of the old crowd as possible. And I've never been too perturbed by the fact that it was fate that Tenko finished then. I don't think it's done any harm to the original series and sometimes things can go on for too long and they get watered down and it it doesn't always pay to have series that go on and on and on. Uh, I do have regrets that the time post-war wasn't covered but um, Hey, I covered it in a documentary. So <laughs> so it must be terrifically hard to say goodbye to it, even though obviously it had been super successful and, it, you know, had critically acclaimed. But um, it was hard to say goodbye, yeah? Part of me sort of accepted it, really, because it could have gone wrong. I was busy becoming an independent producer at that point, 84, 85, So I did have another life of documentary and being an independent producer. I mean, there was one really odd awards ceremony. It was two series in, but Tenko really got recognised for 
all the yeah um, the BAFTA the BAFTA nomination for best drama serial in that was the 85 ceremony for the 84 series yeah yeah and and at the same time I had two documentaries into that same BAFTA awards ceremony for Channel 4 so I I was on a different table which I was sort of hosting (laughs) the Tenko table I can't remember geographically where it was but I kept sort of bouncing between the two tables (laughs) and that was my life then because Channel 4 was very exciting for me and it was very exciting to form the company in 83, 84 I think 83 I did as a sort of an answer to your question (laughs) other things were going on and Tenko still had that wonderful feeling of what it had done for me and hopefully helped other people as well. You were, you were a nine-year-old boy when you watched Tenko. The first time, yeah. <laughs> the wonderful thing is that you brought your wonderful enthusiasm for it to doing your book. And I've since met... A lot of people who were children, let's say, watching it with their mums and, and their dads too, and, and saying how important it had been in their viewing life. So thank you for, for your obsession with it. <laughs> and, and, and thank you for the book. That's okay. I, I, I had to write it. It's one of those things, you know, you feel compelled to do. I had to do it. Like me and Tenko. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what place does Tenko hold in your heart now? It's, it's obviously still very important to you. Yeah, very important. I've just, <laughs> I've just shown how much it's <laughs> yes. snivelling wreck. I mean, having said that, I don't like, you do know this about me, I don't like going back on things too much. I know what a place in my heart and in my career it holds but I'd still rather think about now or the future the telly and look how much has happened it's oh been incredibly important for me and gave me a, a confidence to hopefully try new things as well more new things and what have you so I find it a bit difficult to talk about myself just in in a an interview situation like this but yeah uh, it's part of my heart the women the original women the cast the production team everyone and writers everyone to do with Tenko it's like a constant in my life which is completely important to me and now I see how lucky it was that it was such a success as well because it, it was a different animal have you got a favourite souvenir, anything, a keepsake from your Tenko days at all? Oh, I've got several. I'm looking now at a poster for Tenko and also the original artwork, which actually was very simple. Just a sunset from the Japanese flag and barbed wire across it and a palm leaf coming down it that it was as simple as that and yet it was very arresting and I have the original I also have original t-shirts of which you have one yes I didn't steal <laughs> it listeners <laughs> I was gifted it <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm still a hoarder. So of course, I, I, I've kept all the letters from audience, cast, everybody to do. I've kept everything. So they're all my mementos. <laughs> and just the fact that we keep seeing it. It was a breakthrough series, they say, and people want to keep seeing it. So I'm, I'm very delighted about that. So can you tell me about your plans to revise and update Women Beyond the Wire, which is something that is a current project for you? Yeah, it is a current project. Not changing the, the bulk of the book, but the final chapter um, of the original book was called Epilogue, and it dealt with 40 years on, the, the characters in the book and the, the people from the camps, we actually updated to tell people what they were doing then, 40 years later. Now it's, well, how many years? I'm hopeless at this. 38, nearly 40 again. Right, another 40. Yeah. <laughs> A hell of a lot happened, I can hardly believe it. Thank God I was young then. (laughs) One of the most exciting things is that there were four camps in Sumatra and the last one in a place called Belalu in the middle of the jungle. The Japanese hadn't told the Allies in 45 where it was and it took a long time. It was the last camp to be in Asia to be freed. They were all lost in the jungle and awful things might have happened, but they didn't, thank goodness. In that last camp particularly, and anyway, in Muntok, where so many women died of a particular fever that they named Banker Fever from the island's name Banker. So many women, and as I told you, 600 women were in this particular camp At the beginning, 300 came out, 300 roughly deaths. And a lot of those women didn't have proper graves. So they were buried in the jungle or lost, lost after the war when the governments didn't pay enough attention to to mark where mass graves were or whatever. Anyway, through people like Margie Caldicott, who, who is Sheila Brown's daughter, Sheila Brown was a young girl in camp. Through Sheila and subsequently through Margie, they've been trying to trace where the grave should be, where the memorial should be, and helped in this since about 2010 by this wonderful lady. Judy Balcom in Australia and the sum total of what what they've done together is now they've got a memorial for what were the lost graves in Banker Island, um, Muntok and in Palembang. There's a peace museum now. There's a walk of humanity every year The Indonesian government have put a lot of money into it. On on the site of where unknown graves were, there's now an Indonesian school. All these and, and many more amazing things have happened. So obviously I wanted to put all that down. Yeah. And it's very exciting. And we've also had a concert here 
uh, Nora Chambers in the camp in the earlier days when people weren't dying off because of malnutrition and disease. She and a wonderful missionary called Margaret Driver, Nora Chambers and Margaret Driver, formed this vocal orchestra to keep people's spirits up. A vocal orchestra which depended on people's voices for violins and other musical instruments. And she actually wrote down, she, she'd been to the Royal College of Music, she wrote, wrote down the scores for Handel, Beethoven, Ravel, and this beautiful music was hummed in the camp and lifted everybody's spirits. Now, it hadn't been performed since in the UK until 2013 uh, when we did a concert in Chichester, a church in Chichester. And I actually filmed for archive use um, this concert. Steph Cole and Louise Jameson and Ronnie Roberts came to help us. Ronnie directed the choir and final analysis and Lou and Steph actually did the commentary. I've done the script. We we had we had a wonderful audience. And it was the first time the vocal orchestra had the music had been heard and performed by the Chichester choir. And it was wonderful and again a, a sort of milestone really. So I wanted to write about that and what music does for the spirits. So there's there's lots to lots to put into this new chapter or chapters. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fantastic. Um, so we'll we'll look out for that published at, at some point soon. I hope by 2022. Okay, cool, wonderful. When I hope we're going to have another concert. Ah, wow. Thank you so much for going back to Tenko today. It's been so rewarding to hear hear your memories and to hear about your passion for the series and and yeah, to hear that you're still emotionally invested in it and it's it's important to you. I'm sure our listeners will, will appreciate yeah. the time you've given. Well, thank you, Andy. As I say, you've been brilliant that you have done so much with your book and and with your kindness to us all so thank you